Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, Michael. How are we doing? Doing okay? Doing good, how about you? I'm good. I was doing better before I looked at the forecast that said snow later this week. Yes. That, uh, that pulled my mood down a little bit, but I'm surviving. It's good. March just has a way of wanting to remind us winter is not over yet. Someday, somehow, it will end. Well, okay, today uh, we're going to pivot. I told you it was going to be more fun, so I'm trying to keep my promise to you. Um, I'm curious, uh, how many of you all have heard the name Melchizedek before? Oh, wow, you're all Melchizedek experts. So, what do we know about Melchizedek? Kind of a high priest, right? Right. Uh, he uh, does anyone know how many stories in the Bible he appears in? One, totaling about three verses. So it won't be hard for us to get through it. Um, and what's fascinating is, I'm not going to tell you what's fascinating. We're going to discover what's fascinating <laughs> together. Let's do. Let's jump into Melchizedek, Genesis chapter 14. Uh, is where we find the great Melchizedek, and uh, this is a this is fun. This is a fun story. Um, we're going to back up um, just in context. I'm not going to read this to you, but what precedes this story, you might remember, Lot is Abram's nephew, and they have this on again, off again relationship kind of thing. But Lot gets kidnapped by a, a band of marauders. Uh, another king uh, is trying to. Um, get some property and possessions and so he gets kidnapped abram comes to his nephew's rescue and immediately following that uh he's successful he he returns lot and his possessions that's in verse 16 um and so at the end of this military defeat abram rescuing his nephew we uh, begin here uh verse 17 after abram returned from defeating Ketelamor and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Sorry, I have to turn my page. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share what belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, uh, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now what follows this is the a very important part of this text where the Lord comes in and makes this eternal covenant with Abram, which, of course, you know, extends throughout the rest of the story throughout into the New Testament, the promise of God's faithfulness to that covenant. But we are focused here on Melchizedek, which is fascinating because for the length of the story itself, it gets a very disproportionate level of interest 
in the history of Israel. And part of that is because of how strange this story is. Because Melchizedek is both called a priest and a king. And that may not seem that strange to you, but in the culture and religion of Judaism throughout its entirety to this day, the idea of someone being priest and king is not thought. That, that's not a thing that's shared. You have the priestly line, you have the Davidic kingly line. Those two things are both important, but they're never combined. And so the fact that Melchizedek is described as the king and that he's also described as an eternal priest, that is just odd. And so if you look at Jewish uh, literature, if you look at the Jewish conversations around Melchizedek, there's always some version of trying to reconcile why would these two things be put together. These are two things that do not go together. So that's interesting. But then there's also the modifier of the term priest, which is how long is he the priest for? Eternally. What? Who's eternally a priest? Because once you die, you're not priest anymore. You're not a bad person, but you're not functioning as priest. Because remember, a priest is by definition the person in the middle. The priest stands in between the people and their God. That's the role of the priest, is standing in the middle of those two parties. And so when you are no longer living, you are no longer in between. Someone else will serve that role and that function. So how is Melchizedek an eternal priest? Odd. Makes no sense. So we see the plot thicken. Let's turn to Psalm 110. Gotta love David. David makes everything more interesting. Psalm 110. And we're going to see a reflection. This is, this is hundreds, if not a thousand years after the the Genesis text. We turn here to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Weird and random. David doesn't mention Melchizedek anywhere else. This, This is not just a common biblical trope. This just literally gets dropped into Psalms. And what is innovative about this is the idea that someone could be in the order of priesthood of Melchizedek. And you got, you've got to remember, we, we as Americans, pretty much our culture is dead set against this. But you have to remember, in Judaism, there are 12 tribes. And your tribe matters. It, it says something about you. Specifically, the Levitical tribe, which is the priestly tribe. So if you're going to be a priest, you're not from Dan. You're not from Asher. You're, you're not from Judah. You're a Levite. That, that's your family's role, right? But here, the psalmist David says, in the, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not the Levitical role. In the order of Melchizedek. What are you doing? You're making another brand of priests, David? Like, this is just almost nonsensical, but it's a way that the you see the Jewish readers reading that story of Melchizedek. How are you an eternal priest? What does it mean to be a king and a priest at the same time? How is it you only appear in one passage and then you disappear? This is just another Old Testament example of looking back to Genesis and seeing this. And as far as I'm aware, these are the only two direct 
references to Melchizedek in, in the entire Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. So you think, whatever, Michael, way to find the obscure. How are we going to make this interesting? Now we get to go to the New Testament. So let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. This is where this just gets super interesting. And, um, you know, if we weren't such avid readers of the Bible, we might be surprised by the Bible more often than we are. Um, there's a ton here. And unfortunately, we don't have time. We're not, we're not going to read through all of it. Um, but let's look at a chapter. Let's start in verse 1 of 5. and It gives us some context. So every high priest is selected from, we're remembering we're in the New Testament now. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is a restatement of what I just said. Remember, a priest stands in between. That's what this is saying, that they are appointed between God and the people to do these functions. The priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant, who are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, we'll make this very clear. Priests are human, which is why they make sacrifices not just for the people they represent, but for themselves, because they're weak. And they stand in the tradition of who? Aaron, which is the Levitical role, right? So human priests, Levitical role. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Ah, okay. Now this is where it starts to get interesting. So does anyone know extra credit points are available? Uh, what tribe is Jesus born into? You can answer the question if you know what tribe David was born into. Don't feel bad. Actually, I had to look it up to confirm myself. Uh, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Judah. So, Jesus is not born into the correct tribe to be a priest. That's interesting. So, the author of Hebrews points over to the Levitical tribe. He says, isn't it interesting? that they have to make sacrifices for themselves because of their own brokenness, and they have to make sacrifices for the people. So that is the human priesthood. But he says Jesus is not like them, but he is of the eternal order, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's keep going. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears, to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Uh, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It changed. Did you see what just changed there? 
we began in verse 6, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But by the end of verse 10, he is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You see what's happening here? We, be, we have three layers. Let's just build it together with a marker I lost. There we go. We've got three layers. You've got the earthly priest, uh, which I'm, for sake of simplicity, we're going to call the Levitical priests. Then we have the uh, Melchizedek, which I'm going to summarize with Melk, because I'm not going to spell his name right. And then you have the high priest of Melchizedek. Fascinating. You start with the humans. You then go to this odd, obscure text in Genesis about this priest who has no uh, beginning and no end. There's no line. And then suddenly you have Jesus Christ, who's called the high priest of Melchizedek. So essentially what the author of Hebrews is doing, this is where we turn back, is he's reading the Old Testament and sees what we would consider this very odd, sort of off-the-beaten-path text, and he says, Jesus is king, and Jesus is high priest. Jesus is the one who is above the Levitical priests. He ascends beyond them because he's not of their line. He's not of the tribe of Levi. He's not even Melchizedek himself. He is Melchizedek's high priest. He is the eternal priest on behalf of all of us. All right, we'll, we'll see that fleshed out here. Let's, um, uh, it would be really interesting, and we, and we would all love to read chapter 6 and go through that with a fine-tooth comb, but we don't have time, so let's jump right to verse uh, chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham uh, returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. So fascinating of of all of the Old Testament. I've already uh, we've already talked together about the fact that in the Old Testament the idea of a soul living on is not a concept that is really applied. It's fascinating that the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that he believes that Melchizedek has been living eternally. That he's a priest who had no beginning and no end. Uh, Verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder which isn't as big of a deal for us. That that doesn't make a huge impact. But whoever your greatest hero is in life, it'd be like saying your greatest hero showed deference to this person, right? It, it, this is to give, for Abraham to do something is, is a huge deal. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, who was blessing who in this story? Who was giving what to who? Abraham was being blessed by Melchizedek, 
and Abraham was giving Melchizedek a tenth. So who's greater in the story? Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if Abraham is the top top, if he's the one who God made the covenant with, and everybody has been looking to Abraham for that promise throughout all time, Melchizedek is above Abraham. That's the, the point in, uh, simplified. Eight, uh, verse 8. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his, of his ancestor. By the way, that should strike you as a very odd comment. May I remind you that the idea uh, of that birth of the child is the idea of that forebearer living on. So the idea that Levi had not yet born because he comes way down the story through many generations, right? But the idea is that everyone comes from Abraham. So somewhere down the line, Levi will exist because he's Abraham's descendant. So that's the idea um, that Levi is even represented in Abraham because he's not born yet. All right, we're getting to the interesting stuff. Verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. I love it when the text asks questions. It's telling you what it's about to answer. So why is the question. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. There you go. Jesus descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The Judah is not supposed to have priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, or it is declared, again, was this the second time, third time we've quoted this? You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and not changed his mind. You are a priest forever. All right. Verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Love this. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. Okay, if you tuned out, here's the main point. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set the Lord, not by a mere human being. Boom. There we go. All right. So 
what just happened here? Obscure text in the Old Testament about this king priest that no one really understands. Here the writer of Hebrews wants to make the case that Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest. And so he doesn't do that by pointing to Jesus's heritage or genealogy. In fact, he says, if Jesus was a Levitical priest, then it would be useless because the Levitical priests, their time and role ends when they die. They're priests with a weakness. But Jesus is a priest without a weakness because he's not a priest in the order of the Levites. He's a priest of the eternal order of Melchizedek. And if he's a priest of the eternal order of Melchizedek, Jesus can be king and priest at the same time. And he is the one, therefore, who no longer needs to make a sacrifice for you. It's been done eternally. And this was maybe the craziest statement of all of them. Not only is he the high priest of Melchizedek, but did you notice he offered himself as the sacrifice? Pause on that for a second. The priest offered himself as the sacrifice. So you may not know this, uh, and this may not seem to be as radical as I am thrilled to think that it is. But you have to realize in a world in which everybody believes, here's you, here's God, there's this inescapable chasm between you and God, right? That's taken for granted. You don't get to God by yourself. How do you get to God? We, you get to God by building a bridge through someone else. And that someone else in the Old Testament conception is the priest. And what does the priest offer? What is, the, what is this bridge that gets made for you? It's the lamb. It's the sacrifice. It's the innocent thing that dies for you. Without the lamb, you don't get to God. And without the priest offering the lamb, you don't get to God. That's the arrangement. That's the deal. Imperfect people can't get to God without this accommodation made by the law. We're all on the same page? So this is the framework. What the author of Hebrews just wrote is, this priest is not a human, this priest is Jesus. But it's not just that, it's that Jesus offered Jesus as the sacrifice. So the priest is the sacrifice, and the priest is eternal, and the sacrifice is eternal. So therefore, because Jesus stands in the middle, there is now no one between you and God himself because Jesus is God. The author of Hebrews just made the argument that we look to the Old Testament to see how we were separated from God and how we now come to understand that because Jesus is God, no one stands between you and the Savior of the world. The only thing in between you and God is the sin that separates you from God, which is solved eternally by you receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. So you all have believed, if you've been in the Reformed Church at all for any amount of time, you believe this idea that Jesus Christ is the Savior. You believe this idea that, that the pastor is not in between you and God, that there's not a church body or elder, or that you believe that it's between you and Jesus. But here, this really odd, off-the-wall Old Testament story is laid out 
as the example par excellence to define and make the case why that is true, which I think is awesome. All right, thoughts, questions, feedback? So who builds a bridge? Who builds the bridge between me and God? Does, does Jesus build a bridge or do I build a bridge? I can't build a bridge. What do you think? Jesus built a bridge. Right. Not? No, I, I'm just, I'm asking. Mm hmm Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think to get to God. The, the, the case, the case I think the, the writer of Hebrews is making is that there was all, that, that God's accommodation for our sinfulness in the Old Testament was all of these formulas and agreements about how things would go. That, that the sinners had to do all of this stuff if we were going to get to have access to a righteous God, right? And I think what the writer of Hebrews is making the case for is that if you look at all of that stuff that they were doing, all of that actually is fulfilled in Jesus. That it did it at this level, and Jesus did it at this level. And if that's the case, then my, then ultimately, Jesus is the answer to all of the questions of the old order. It no longer has anything to do with what you do. It's about what he did. It no longer has to do with about how well you enact the practices of the law. It's about the one who kept the law for you. It's not about you sacrificing the lamb. It's that the lamb sacrificed himself because he's the ultimate eternal high priest. It, this is the thing maybe I'm trying to make a case you should be more excited about the high priest. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get you on the team here. Sorry. Be, sorry. <laughs> no, be, because we don't we don't grow up with that framework, right? You don't you don't believe in the high priest. There's not some high priest Presbyterian in Louisville who, like we all hope, goes in and shake some incense over an altar. I mean, that's not, we are beyond that, right? We're on, we're on this side of the historical equation, but you've got to think of the early church. Try to put yourself in their sandals or no shoes, whatever you want to put in, in their footwear. Just try to, for a moment, figure that you grew up believing in the priesthood. They, these are your pastors. They, if they go sacrifice and they do it right, they let you be okay with God. This is it. There's no sinner's prayer. There's no you having a conversion. They believe somebody else needed to do the thing if you got to make it to the other side to God. And now here, the writer of Hebrews comes to that and says, you've always believed this priesthood stuff. Let me introduce you to the priest who offered himself as the sacrifice, who is eternally your priest, and you never have to have someone in between you and God ever again. Now you're going to be like the Pentecostals and dancing down the center aisle. That changes everything. It absolutely changes the entire equation. And we learn it in Sunday school, right? That we've learned, I mean, if we had, if our Sunday school teacher was, you know, worth half a penny, they told us that there's nothing in between you and God. Thanks be to God. But the earliest church was looking in their scriptures to understand who Jesus was. And when they turned to their scriptures, they turned to this weird story of Melchizedek, and they found that weird story to be the example to give them an understanding of who Jesus was eternally. And that became for them what they taught in their Sunday school so that the previous order might understood to be wiped out by Jesus's work.
There we go. I raised my voice. I got passionate. Are you excited about it now? <laughs> Other thoughts, questions? I, I did I even answer no, your question. No, no. You, you said uh, we build a bridge, and I, Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is a bridge to God. Right. Without without Jesus, I couldn't get to God. I mean, I right. know that. So can I build a bridge to God? No, I can't. But Jesus gets me there. But they 100% believe you did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that that was what the sacrifices were about. I mean, that, that, was, that was how you got there. Yeah. I mean, the law represented the human. We forget this, the, this idea of Abraham and the covenant. Covenants are by definition by transactual agreements. The irony of the covenant with Abraham is God has always been faithful to God's side. But Abraham and his people have always screwed it up. But that we know that we nod our head to that because we're Presbyterians and we like to revel in the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity. But the reality is the Israelites took that covenant seriously. I mean, they would be humble enough to admit, yeah, we, we mess up sometimes. But they they tried to keep the law. I mean, they believed it was their job to build the bridge. They really believed that. And so the Christians who believed that Jesus Christ made the bridge for you and he's invited you to walk it was a brand new idea. They, they simply had never thought that before, which is, by the way, um, uh, I, I'm preaching next Sunday. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. So, you know, just beware if that changes your attendance. I understand. But I would say, like, think about that for just a moment. The one who's coming the, the one who's coming to, to change everything is going to be received as the high priest and, and he's going to be received with all this acclaim and all this joy. And the people, they're going to kill him a few days later. When Jesus says he offers himself for us, he doesn't mean he's going to kill himself. He means the people he came to build the bridge for are going to kill him. And I think that's that's the really interesting turn here is if Jesus Christ is the high priest of Melchizedek, not only does he do a thing for us that we can't do by ourselves, but he actually in doing that shows us how deep our brokenness goes because we're the one who ultimately kill him. The people he comes to save are the very people who kill him. And, and that that's. If you think that our job, if you think of it from the ancient Hebrew perspective, our job is to keep our part of the covenant with God. We killed God's covenant. Literally, the covenant is Jesus and we killed him. And so ultimately, we all stand. This is part of that idea of original sin. We all stand guilty of killing the one who came for us. And, and since we're guilty of that, it's only him who has the power to forgive us. And the great news of the gospel is he's chosen to do so. It'd be fascinating just, just to say that we hung on to that idea, uh, that Levitical idea, right? That 100%. 1500, for 1,500 years we did that after Jesus. I mean, we, we said there has to be somebody in between. It can't be just me go to God. Wasn't yep. that what uh, Luther was all about? I mean, he was, yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. Hey, guys, a long time ago this guy came into the world here to save us. We don't need that anymore. We don't need somebody in between us and Jesus, right? Well, I mean, we hung on to that thing for a long, long time. Yeah, I may be more pessimistic than you might. I mean, I think we continue to do that. I mean, uh, I, I think the one of the greatest, um, I, I think one of the most 
excuse my use of this word, but I mean this as a technical use of this word, one of the most damning parables that Jesus offers is the parable of the vineyard and the workers. Do you remember that parable? The idea that some people show up at 6 a.m., they work all day long. Some people show up at 9, some show up at 12, some show up with an hour left to work. And at the end of the day, they show up and the owner of the vineyard has the gall to pay them all the same amount. Not the same rate, the same amount. That is offensive. It is. It, it, that's an offensive economic transaction. And I'll be honest with you, Mike. Every Christian is tempted to think, I've been doing it longer, I've been doing it better than you, or you, or you. And we like to think about putting more jewels in that crown. And when we do that, I think we, we may not be doing it on purpose, Mike, but we're trying to build our own bridge. I'm going to make God happier with me. I'm going to do the right thing. And the, the, the crazy part of the gospel is that person who lived a wild, crazy, not church life approved life can get the same rate, the same wage. That's how crazy grace is. And to somebody who grew up in the church and is a perfectionist and cares a lot about the faith, I think that's flat wrong. And Jesus confronts me over and over and over again because he says, hey, I'm the bridge. I get to do what I want. He's Lord and I'm not. And, and he and I, he's patient with my arguments about that. Right. But I really mean that we should we should be convicted when we come to a story like this, because. You know, I grew up in a holiness tradition in the church where, where people believed, you know, if you go to the bowling alley and you drink a beer and you swear when you miss, you're, you better make sure you say some prayers tonight or you're going the opposite direction. And that gets really close to that, Mike. Right? If I, if I miss, and I, I have a bad bowling night, and I said some words, and I get hit by the snowplow on the way home. There's real questions in those communities of faith about are you saved or not. I don't want to. I'm not trying to dismiss them and make it sound as if that's not important. Please don't hear me in that tone. What I'm saying though is, I, I think we operatively do question this all the time because we we as humans want to take credit for what we do for salvation. And if you hear Jesus rightly, and I think if you hear the author of Hebrews rightly, you don't build the bridge. He did. So at the end of the day, if you and I show up to Peter's gate, by the way, all of my hope and faith is built on this. I'll be completely honest with you. I hope that there's not a register of how Michael Gawecki did in life. I hope that's not it. Because if that's the account, I'll be seeing you on the other side. <laughs> I hope that at the gate, I hope that in that judgment day is another image that the scripture uses. I hope they judge me by Jesus's account because he is the one who consistently had forgiveness for those who didn't deserve it. And that's, that's the hope of the gospel. Um, but I think it's worth re remembering that maybe our basic human temptation is to think they need Jesus's grace, but I have 
a lifelong faith behind me. So I'm probably good. And that needs corrected. Whenever we slip into that, we need reminded Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the priest and he's your access to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks for being here, friends.